but vision is it's kind of one of those things that we talk about, but we don't really define it a lot. Um, you know, you should have a good vision and a clear vision, a strong vision. But what is vision at the end of the day? I think vision really encompasses two things. One is what you see. So whatever you're looking at right now, there you go. That's part of your vision. It is where you is or is where you are. And uh, that, that is your vision. You're seeing where you are and what's around you. And that's that's part of it. The other part of it is sort of looking ahead as you close your eyes, perhaps, and you form that mental picture of what maybe next week's going to look like or next month or next year. That is part of vision as well. As we look to the future and try to define that, maybe we might say with our imagination what that looks like. And through your life, that has evolved and changed. Uh, perhaps as a child, you had a different vision for your life than the vision that you see today, and it's different. Perhaps you are working towards a, a great vision, and you've got an idea of where you want to go and things you would like to become, and that's part of your vision, and, and that's subject to change as well. Our vision is very fluid in a lot of regards. You know, it's, it's moving to see the Olympics, and they're coming up this year. Uh, when you see those gymnasts who are children themselves and then they accomplish, they win and you go, man, that is what they have wanted their whole lives. And you can tell that they have seen themselves there doing that. And that's incredibly moving and powerful. Uh, sometimes we have vision about what something ought to look like or a person ought to look like or maybe a profession ought to look like. And we have, we might call that a stereotype about that uh, it's a vision that we've kind of already prescribed to something. And when somebody doesn't live up to it, uh, we, we get a sense of, of disconnection. Um, one of these men, I think, today is, is team Tim Tebow. I, I probably don't have to tell you who he is. He's the, the quarterback of the Broncos. Uh, USA Today, about a month ago, uh, did a little uh, biopic on him. Uh, he's, he starts the article by saying, he says, I feel like I'm pretty open about stuff if people look into it. Uh, he says a bit hesitantly. Outside of football and training, I'm somewhat of a homebody. I love hanging out with my siblings and close friends. It's my favorite thing to do in the world. I love laughing. I love telling jokes. I really try to enjoy life and have joy with what I do. I don't know. I guess that's a little uh, inside look at me. Uh, these are simple pleasures, the author goes on to say, for a somewhat complicated young man, one who is certainly no off-the-field NFL throwback when it comes to the marquee position. Back in the bodier days of fo professional football, some wildly popular quarterbacks showed off their nonconformity, arrogance, and pure, unadulterated bad boy behavior. The New York Jets, Joe Namath, wore blondes on both arms in the late-night haunts. Ken Stabler liked to say he studied the Raiders' playbook by the light of the jukebox and Oakland honky-tonks. Hard partying and all-nighters seemed the norm. More recently, the introduction of uh, personal brand building and greater image buffing, cell phone cameras, and 24-hour instant news uh, has fostered greater circumspection. John Elway knows what it's like to be a, a stud pro quarterback. The two-time Super Bowl winner and Hall of Famer was the toast of Denver during his heyday, and he enjoyed the perks. Now the Broncos' executive vice president of football operations, Elway 51, understands that the public, often jaded with buff public veneers of some athletes, might wonder about Tebow despite his reputation for embodying Christian values. Is he too good to be true? asked Elway. He answers his own question. He says, I think that's how the media represents it, but that is how we see him as genuine. 
Tim is beyond his years on and off the field. His maturity level dealing with the pressures of what comes with the playing position is enviable, Elway says. Tim Tebow seems to uh, outside observers to be somebody who's got a very clear vision of who he is and what he ought to be. And the question is, do we have that same clarity? The book of Judges is a book about vision. I had not really seen that until this this last week as I really was pouring through the book. But there's two phrases that show up in the book that really serve as interpretive markers for the entire book. It says, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right according to their own eyes. Maybe you picked up on that as you read, but it shows up twice uh, verbatim. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right according to their own eyes. In other words, their vision was the determining factor for what was right and what was wrong. Situational ethics at best. What situation are you in? Well, then make the most of it. That's kind of how that worked. And Samson really is, I think, the poster child for this book. Now, we talk a lot about what is your vision. You know, what is your vision for five years or ten years? And you might be somebody that writes that down or has a plan or But I think the more important question isn't so much what is your vision for your life, but what is God's vision for your life? What is it that that when God looks at you that he really wants to see happen? Well, Samson was born uh, as a miracle. Uh, The angel foretold his birth. And in that, that, that foretelling, the angel gives the vision for Samson's life. In the story, it's on page 92 the very bottom there, those, those two paragraphs. Uh, we pick up here what has happened throughout the book. It says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, the last paragraph there in 92 says this. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless and able to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is to never be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Right here we see Samson's uh, life purpose, God's vision for Samson's life. It it encompasses two things. The first is that he's going to be a Nazarite, holy to God. This would be the equivalent of a wandering holy man in Israel. Uh, He was not a priest. He was not a prophet. He was just holy. And you could tell the Nazarites because they didn't cut their hair. And so you've got a bunch of, of holy men wandering around Israel with their hair long. And, and they, they had four vows, essentially, that, that made them holy. The first is they weren't going to cut their hair. The second is that they weren't going to touch any fermented drink. The third is that they weren't going to eat anything unclean. And the fourth is that they were not going to touch anything dead. Those were the, the stipulations for the vow of the Nazarite as laid out in Numbers chapter 6. And so Samson, he's getting a head start. The angel says to his mother, listen, we're going to start with you. You're not going to drink anything uh, fermented. You're not going to eat anything unclean. And this child is going to be born holy. He's going to be set apart for this purpose of being holy to God. Now, God doesn't want him just to be holy to be holy. 
Most Nazarites were Nazarites for a period, and they gave that up. Samson has a unique, lifelong call to be a Nazarite. But he doesn't want him to be a monk locked away in some cloister. It says this. It says, he will begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And so that's the second part. First part is he's going to be completely dedicated to God. That's essentially what holy means. He's separate. He's other. He's dedicated to God. That second part, though, gets at his service. He's going to serve the people of God. Now, if you think about it, that's really the same mission that we have here as a church. We've said that we exist to fulfill the two great commandments as laid out by Jesus. He says, you know, love the Lord your God. And the second is to love your neighbor. And so that's our mission. We say, you know, we, we live in a relationship of love and worship to God that encompasses every day. And that is part one of the mission. Part two is loving people. Now, we've said there's three kinds of people that you've got to love. There's the, the broken. We love those through compassion. The church, we love those through fellowship. The world, we love those through evangelism. And those are the three kinds of people. But that's the same mission that Samson's got here. He's going to live dedicated to God, and he is going to live in service to God's people. That is Samson's mission. And his mission is the same as your mission. If you flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2, we won't look at it, but verse 9, you can write it down, or it might be on your handout. But 1 Peter 2, 9, it tells us uh, that we are a royal priesthood. In other words, we are set apart for God in order that we would proclaim the excellencies of God. So you, you see that there. You know, we're set apart, we're holy to, to live in a life of worship, and then we're also to proclaim God's goodness to who? to everyone we meet, dedicated to God and service to people. That is the vision that God had for Samson. And when Samson uh, looked out at that vision, either he found that less desirable or maybe not desirable at all. Because God's vision for us and God's vision for Samson seemed to really not be his vision. Something got in the way of that. What, what was it? Well, it was what Samson was looking at. It was what Samson's vision was about. Samson gets in a lot of trouble in this book. And it all starts with this one phrase. Or not even a phrase, it's a word, it's a verb. It says, see. He sees things. Let me show you what I mean. Page 93, we'll start. God's got this vision, the Spirit of the Lord, it says, begins to stir in him. What happened? Second paragraph, page 93. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned to his father and mother, he said, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Now, now last week we looked at how God had sort of forbidden the surrounding peoples from marrying into the Israelites. The primary reason for that was because they did not want the idolatrous practice of those nations to come in and to infect their children. This is not something we have to deal with today, but for them it was very, very serious. God said, you do not marry them because they're going to teach you to not follow me. And so what happens? Samson knows this, and yet he goes down. And he sees a woman, and she's attractive, and he wants her. And so he's led astray from the very best that God has for his life because of something that he sees. They pursue a marriage. If you skip down a little bit, it says, Samson then goes down to Timnah, together with his father and mother. As they approach the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. The Spirit of the Lord came on him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands 
as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. And then he went and talked with a woman, and he liked her. Apparently, he not even talked to her before. Now, this is an amazing story. Um, how many of you have ever torn a lion apart with your bare hands? It's pretty awesome. I, I like how they put in here as a reference that he tore it apart as he might have torn apart a young goat, as though that is sort of a normative experience. I've never torn apart a young goat. Maybe, maybe some of you have, um, and I, I don't really want to know. Um, but I imagine that would be easier. I can kind of imagine with my mind that tearing apart a young goat would be a little bit easier than a lion with big teeth coming at you. But it says that Samson tears this animal apart and then throws it off to the side of the road and leaves it there in the bushes and then goes on his business as any really rugged man would have done. But he doesn't say anything because, you know, you don't want to brag about that. Uh, and then it says this. It says sometime later, a few days, weeks, we don't know. It says he went back to marry her, and it says he turned aside to look. He turns aside to what? To see uh, the lion's carcass, and in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. Now, now let's just be real clear about what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a dead animal carcass, side of the road. It's been dead for some time. Meanwhile, some bees have taken residence there and have started honey-making operation in this roadside stand. It says Samson scooped out the honey with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some and they too ate it, but he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Well, imagine that conversation. Here's some honey. I scooped it out of a dead animal on the way over here. You want a bite? No. no. I don't want any of that. Now, this is really disgusting. I mean, let's just be honest. It's really heinous to think about eating something from a dead animal. And yet, as disgusting as it is to us, it's even more disgusting in this time to the Jewish people. Remember those four Nazarite vows? What does it say? You're not going to eat anything unclean. You're not going to touch anything dead. You're not going to drink any drink. And you're not going to cut your hair. Four things. This takes care of two of them. He is touching something dead. And he is eating something unclean. Why is it unclean? It's because it's inside of something dead. So in one fell scoop, Samson kills off half of the Nazarite vow. Fantastic. Why? Because he saw something. He saw something. Now, the next paragraph says this. Now, his father went down to see the woman, and there Samson held a feast, as was customary for young men. Uh, feast here is not just like the word for a dinner party. Uh, there is the implication in this type of feast that there is drinking going on. Now, this word, I think, is included, and most commentators agree that this word is included because it's pretty clear that Samson is drinking at this party. And so he has touched something dead, he has eaten something unclean, and now he has drank something that is fermented. So he's only got one uh, stipulation left of the Nazarite vow that he has not violated. And what did it start with? It started with him seeing something. If you move on, there's one more place that that shows up. Page 96, it says, One day Samson went to Gaza 
where he saw a prostitute, he went in to spend the night with her. So Samson here has now shunned holiness. He's shunned uh, righteousness. He's shunned morality. And it all starts with him seeing something. Now, perhaps you can really relate to Samson. Men, maybe perhaps you can especially relate to Samson. And as we talk about Samson seeing these women and Samson being led astray, maybe we don't have to go too far for you to say, yeah, that is, that's me. That's me. And it's leading you astray. It's causing you to fix your eyes on something that is less than what God intends for you. Now, I really think this boils down to two things. One is how we see people, and the other is how we see sin. I think if we could get these two things mastered, we could really sail along in righteousness. The first is people. How is it that you see people? Samson here is not apparently very concerned with a lot of people. He sees this woman, and it says he wants her. He's maybe not even had a conversation with her, but he sees her and she looks good. And she looks like she might satisfy his desires. And he says, you know what, this, this woman would, would be a great means to an end. And that's it, isn't it? When we start looking at people as means to an end, that's when we start getting into a lot of trouble. It doesn't have to be an object of desire such in the sense of lust, but it could be maybe you form relationships based on the strategic network that that person has. You don't really like them, you don't really care about them, but boy, if I knew that person and we got to be close, then man, I could really go someplace. That person is now a means to an end. And we're not treating that person as a person or we're not having that person in relationship. We're using that person. And we see people as objects. You see, the problem is that when God looks at people, God sees people as His own children. How many of you as parents look at your children as a means to an end? It's harder to do that for your own children because you've got something invested. You've got some love in that relationship. But it's so easy to do that to others. And so we look at people and we don't see them as God's created children. We see them as a means to an end, as an object to satisfy what it is that we want. The second thing we, we have a trouble with is seeing sin as sin. So much sin is socially acceptable. You can sin and still be accepted in society, still sin and be accepted in your circles, still sin and have some great friends. But the problem is that when we do that, we've got to sort of turn a blind eye to sin or we've got to wink at sin. It's not really a big deal. And we don't see it as sin. I just heard on NPR that Kentucky is now ranked fourth in the nation of producing meth congratulations, that's what we've all wanted to be known for, the fourth largest producer of meth in America. Now, I don't, I don't know much about meth. It's not ever been a problem for me, uh, but I, I understand a little bit about how it's made. People that are addicted to meth, I don't think would want any of its ingredients by themselves. You, you take somebody that's addicted to meth and say, hey, listen, would you like to have a, a nice glass of battery acid? And the answer is going to be probably no. No, that's not something I'd like. Well, how about some drain cleaner? Would you like some drain cleaner? No, no, no. I, I think that would probably kill me. Uh, you know, there, there's a sense that, that in its ingredients, you know, lithium batteries and, and, and all of these things, it's not appetizing. 
But yet you put it together in the right way. It's still as deadly. It's still as dangerous. It's still the same thing. But all of a sudden it's desired. Church, that's how sin is. You know, we look at it and we say, well, man, this looks good, but we don't see it for what it really is. We don't see it the way that God sees it. If we could see people the way that God sees people, and if we could see sin the way that God sees sin, man, we would have that great vision of God. And God's vision for our life and ours, I think, would line up. Man, things would be great. But the problem is we keep looking after the things of the world. We look at people as objects. We look at sin as something that is desired, and it leads us to destruction. Let's, let's look here at, at Samson and really his downfall with this woman named Delilah. Uh, sometime later, page 96, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we can tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. How much money is that today? It's a lot. It's a whole bunch of money. So Delilah said to Samson, she said, Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Real subtle. You know, she's, she's subtle about it. Samson answered her. He said, well, if anyone ties me with seven fresh songs that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. So the rulers of the Philistine uh, bring her seven fresh songs that have not been dried. She tied him with them. With men hid in the room, she called him. She said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the thongs as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Now, let's just all pause for a moment of reflection here, okay? Uh, this woman asks you, how can you be tied up and subdued? And then what should happen when you wake up? But you are in that exact scenario you describe. It's, it's fishy at, at best, okay? It's just a little suspicious. Well, what happens again? She says, well, Samson, you, know, you made a fool of me. You lied to me. Now, come, tell me, how can you be tied he said, well, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. And so Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then with men hidden in the room, she called him. She said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Now, the same scenario played out again. You tell the secret of your strength, you wake up in that same situation. You would now be getting suspicious. But Delilah says this, until now you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me, how can you be tied? He replied, if you weave seven braids of my head into the fabric of the loom and tighten it with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric, tightened it with a pin. Again, she called him. She said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke from his sleep. It's a little suspicious when your hair is tied into a loom. Um... He pulls the pin the loom with the fabric. And then she said to him, get this. How can you say I love you when you haven't confided in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. We're going to pause for a second because it seems there's two weaknesses for Samson. One is the hair. The other is the nagging. I've got a lot of really great jokes. I'm going to keep them to myself. I'll tell them to you later. Half of you are really going to think they're funny. 
You figure that out. Anyways, so it says he's been nagged to the point of death. Now, Samson, uh, unlike any rational, sane man, does not look beyond Delilah and say, you know what, this would be better if we did this someplace else, if I found somebody new. Delilah, he looks at her and he sees what he wants and he's willing to give her anything because his vision is captured by her. He wants it so bad. He wants her so bad that he's willing to do what it takes to compromise, even compromise himself. And so what happens? He says, no razor's been used on my head. Because I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I'd be weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more. He's told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with silver in their hands, having put him to sleep on their lap. She called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair, so began to subdue him. And his strength left him. Then she called, The Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. It's the fourth stipulation of the Nazarite vow. Broken. Why? Because he couldn't see beyond the situation. He couldn't see beyond the person of Delilah. He couldn't see beyond what it was he wanted. And so God's vision really can't be lived out in him. It says, The Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They sent him to grinding grain in prison, translated, walking around in circles, pushing a stone. But the hair on his head began to grow again after he had been shaved. Church, if we follow our vision where we want to go, it will lead us to a point of brokenness and destruction. There's just really no way to, to, to look at it differently. If we follow our own eyes of flesh and our own desires and the own, the own things that we want to see, we will end up in a place of brokenness and destruction just like Samson. That's where it takes us. Now, I'm going to tell you something I think is odd for us to consider, but Samson's eyes being gouged out I believe it's a divine act of grace. I believe it is a divine act of grace for Samson. Because Samson, up to this point, every time he sins, what is happening? He sees something and he follows his own eyes. Here, now that his eyes have been put out, what is it that he has to see? You see, church, I believe that when Samson became blind to everything else, that was when he clearly saw God. And I believe the same thing's true for us. When we become blind to everything else, that is when we can see God most clearly. When we turn our eyes from the world and turn them upon Jesus, that is when we can get that same vision. That's where we need to fix our gaze in order to catch a vision of God. Now, Samson is there. And eventually he is brought out to entertain the Philistines. Samson is not a juggler or a joke teller. He is blind. And I think the way you entertain yourself with a blind person is you put things in their way and you watch him trip and you make fun of him. And Samson prays to the Lord. Page 98 has this prayer. He says, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow 
Get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Now, this prayer is not ideal. This is not probably one you say along with the Lord's Prayer, the 23rd Psalm. It's not even one that I would hold up as a great example. But I will tell you that in this prayer, we see Samson has grown spiritually. How do I know that? Well, there's only one other prayer Samson makes. Only one other time that Scripture records him calling on God, verse 95, or page 95. It says this, he, he's just defeated all of the Philistines with the jawbone of the donkey. And because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord. He said, you've given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Notice he didn't even address God by name. He just complains. And he says, listen, do you see how important I am? I've won this great victory. And now what's going to happen? I'm going to die. Here, this prayer is much different. He acknowledges God as being in control. He's a sovereign Lord. He calls God by name, acknowledging that He is the one who has the true power. He says, please. He realizes that God is the one that gives him strength and that God is the one who's going to give him righteousness. That's where Samson had to fix his gaze. It took him being blind to get there. What's it going to take for us? I want to read one more uh, article to you. Whether you know it or not, Lent started Wednesday. Uh, Laura Ortberg-Kerner writes uh, this blog piece on Christianity Today. Uh, And I want to read this as our worship team comes up and gets prepared for our song, Decision. But she says this. She says, My junior year of college, I gave up Vogue for Lent. Now, man, hang with me. I think this can be relevant for you, too. So some people fast for 40 days. Some give up sugar or pray for someone daily or get really crazy and give up Facebook. I gave up a pretentious, ad-filled, once-monthly magazine, and since Lent is 40 days long, that amounted to one issue. Writing that now, it feels pathetic, but in so many ways, it changed my life. I had gotten to a point with what I read in Vogue and other magazines that I found myself in my free time thinking about how I could expand my already large closet and how I looked in comparison with the people in those pages and people around me. More than wanting certain things, I'd grown to want a certain lifestyle. It wasn't the $400 scarf or the gorgeous jacket that cost 10 times our monthly rent. It was that I wanted a lifestyle that would provide me with whatever I want whenever I wanted it. I grew to believe that this lifestyle would provide real security especially against the anxiety that I've struggled with most of my life. If anxiety could be measured in units, I would simply buy them away. After all, the people in these pages looked so happy, so contented. And now I know why not coveting is important enough to have made it into the Ten Commandments. It will eat away at your heart. Nothing, and more importantly, no one will ever be good enough for you because you've lived in a world that does not exist. Coveting is the business, as my mom has often said, of comparing your insides to someone else's outsides. This may not be vogue for you. It may be who brings the best cupcakes to the neighbor's birthday party or how clean your house is or how well you do relative to your colleagues at work. We all have our unique issues. And mine, as I have learned, goes beyond clothes and appearance much more deeply into image. And I would translate that and say perhaps it goes into the issue of vision. 
You know, the more we spend looking at others and comparing ourselves to them and looking at things we want and wondering why it is that we don't have them, the less time we have to look upon God. The less time we have to look to Jesus and to see that it's only in Him that any of those things is satisfied. So this morning, if it's time for you to become blind to all else, to turn your eyes to Jesus and to make that commitment to Him,